I'm Natalie Pearson from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Chow, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry and the Charles Perkins Centre, and a member of both the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre and the Sydney Environment Institute. I think this brief introduction really gives you a sense of how cross-disciplinary Sophie's work is, which is something we will be exploring today in our discussion about food and forests in Indonesia. Sophie identifies as an environmental anthropologist, and her work looks at how human societies conceptualise and interact with the natural environment across space and time. Sophie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Natalie. So you've been doing ethnographic fieldwork in Merauke among the indigenous marined communities of West Papua in Indonesia since 2013. How did you first come to work in this part of the world? So my first visits to Indonesia more generally was in the context of previous work that I did for an international indigenous rights organization called Forest People's Program, or FPP. At the time, I was based in Indonesia, and I was doing a lot of fieldwork across the archipelago, exploring the human rights impacts of large-scale agribusiness developments among indigenous societies and other rural communities. This brought me to do research in Sumatra, in Sulawesi, and and then in West Papua, where I came across radically different ways of thinking about the environment, about forests, among indigenous peoples who to this day derive their subsistence primarily from the forest and who entertain very close cultural links with their natural environment. And this was what spurred my interest in understanding the particular ways in which indigenous West Papuans conceptualize and interact with the forest. Prior to my work with uh, Forest People's Programme, I was also a consultant for the UNESCO and for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and also did work for the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights. Again, a lot of this work was looking at the relationship between human rights, corporate activity, and indigenous peoples, looking at the ways in which international legal frameworks, as well as national ones, either enshrine or counter um, the fundamental rights of indigenous societies and trying to work towards bottom-up approaches that better accommodate the cultures, livelihoods and values of these often very remote uh, societies. The PhD research that I undertook in Merauke between 2015 and 2018 allowed me to spend 18 months uh, living among indigenous Marwind communities and really participating in their everyday life, immersing myself in their life world in order to better understand what exactly it meant for them to lose their forest to, in this case, monocrop oil palm plantations mm. and how this radical environmental transformation reconfigures their sense of identity, of self as indigenous peoples. So I'm really interested in how you navigated that shift from activist and consultant with these big international institutions to becoming a researcher and um, working so closely with and within these communities. What sort of negotiations did you have to undertake in order to be accepted by these communities as a researcher? That's a really good question. It's a really important question because it was and continues to be a very difficult sort of shift. A lot of my academic research is driven by what the anthropologist Charles Hale calls activist research. 
Charles Hale really tries to push against this idea that activism and research are necessarily opposed um, positionalities. At the same time, he certainly highlights the importance of managing the expectations and the hopes of the people that we work with and who are our hosts. And it's always a tricky balance. And for me, having had a long history of relationships with these communities in the role of consultant and in the role of legal expert or a legal advisor, it required a really long process of, of discussion, of deliberation, to really try to figure out what was it that this doctoral research I was now going to undertake, what difference could it make to the people I was working with in the now, in the here and now, but also on the sort of longer term. Now, that required being very, very realistic about the extent to which academic outputs, in the form of journal articles and books, can really make tangible differences or impact on the ground. It required also rethinking sort of academic outputs and publications in a sort of more non-traditional sense. So how does one combine academic outputs with non-traditional outputs, such as advocacy or policy reports? In my case, a lot of participatory mapping, so producing maps that people would then be able to use as evidence in support of their land claims. A lot of my doctoral research was also trying to work towards a joint production of knowledge. So from the very outset, uh, when I was putting together the ethics application for my doctoral research, I wrote the ethics application together with the communities so that they would understand, you know, what does ethics mean to them, first of all? How do they understand, you know, the risks, the possible threats that this research might pose? And how do we ensure both their safety and mine? So I think one of the key things was having those conversations as early on as possible to avoid misunderstanding and you know, disappointment later down the line. I also then made a point of returning to the field after I finished my doctoral research to share my research findings with the communities. So in my case, the thesis and also the articles that I'd published, and to also organize workshops that the communities themselves deemed useful or relevant. So workshops on human rights, for instance, workshops on international legal frameworks, workshops on palm oil sustainability schemes, right? And so all these sort of additional activities are ways in which I try to maintain that sort of activist thread throughout the research whilst also being very, very clear about the limitations or the, the, yeah, the limited extent to which academic outputs could really further the kind of causes and struggles that are happening on the ground. Mm, it's very interesting. I think what you're doing by making that such a priority is challenging the things that universities as higher education institutions place value on in a very corporatized neoliberal educational environment by running participatory workshops and by developing maps together with the communities that the space relates to, uh, you really are pushing back on some of those academic outputs, I suppose, those traditional ac academic outputs. And I was going to ask you whether you identify more as an activist or more as an academic. Perhaps you've already answered that. I mean, it's a question that I continue to ask myself, and it's a problematic question for me. I'm very aware of the risks of multiple positionalities mm -hmm. and multiple shifting identities, I think it's really healthy to keep questioning one's positionality. I think the moment you start to start to stop questioning it, then you become complacent. And perhaps that's when one should start being worried either about one's activist tendencies or one's academic tendencies. So staying with the trouble, I suppose, of these plural identities is really important. I think actually, interestingly, one of the biggest issues I had in terms of negotiating that transition or that role, those dual roles, was less with the communities that I was working with than with the NGOs with right. whom I once worked, mm -hmm. right? NGOs who are often based in urban areas, NGOs who are very or have had bad experiences with researchers coming in, mining the field for data, publishing and never coming back or sharing the outputs. So interestingly enough, it was less the indigenous communities whose world I was trying to understand that were conflicted about this than 
and the NGOs who often themselves face the moral hazard of speaking on behalf of peoples um, without necessarily representing or at times simplifying the kinds of interests and tensions and frictions at play within communities themselves. Mm, very interesting. So many of us um, would not have heard of Marauke save for that very well-known saying from Sabang to Marauke to describe the, the breadth of the Indonesian archipelago. So it is at the eastern limitation of the, the Indonesian archipelago where these Marind communities live. Could you tell us what are some of the issues that the Marind are facing? Sure. So really since about 2008, uh, the global food, fuel and finance crisis, what we've seen in Merauke uh, and indeed in other parts of West Papua and the global south has been an unprecedented spate of large-scale land acquisitions or so-called land grabs. And by this I mean an influx of both foreign and national agribusiness corporations who are purchasing or acquiring vast areas of land to cultivate cash crops such as oil palm, uh, soy, jatropha and others. And so really for Marind communities that I've been working with, the biggest issue that they've been facing since around 2008 is large-scale deforestation and the expansion of monocrop agribusiness plantations. There's also mining happening, but the agribusiness sector really is, is the key one, the key expanding sector at the moment. Now, what have been some of the consequences? Well, there are environmental impacts, of course, that are well known from large-scale deforestation and monocrop expansion, from soil erosion to water pollution, air contamination and the loss of biodiversity caused by deforestation. Um, there's also been a whole range of social impacts as well on these communities. One of which is the fact that many of them are not being consulted or their consent is not being sought when these lands are being transferred usually by the government to the corporations. Uh, where the consent is sought, it's often not free, prior or informed. There's a lot of corruption and elite cooptation. Uh, many times companies work very closely or in collusion with military personnel who often work as security guards or even shareholders in the companies. So there's a huge amount of intimidation, pressure uh, and indeed coercion happening, which is by way of which people are finding themselves forced to surrender lands that they have owned since time immemorial. Other issues are, you know, along gendered and racial lines. There's a problem of, of endemic racism in West Papua that precedes the kind of agribusiness expansion I'm talking about now. But it manifests within the palm oil sector in the sense that very few Papuans are uh, being given job or employment opportunities within the palm oil sector because these opportunities are given instead to migrants, to settlers, or indeed to a labor force that is brought in by the companies when they come to West Papua. So there's a lot of a sense of grievance that even the development that is promised and on the basis of which people surrender their lands is not actually concretized. It's not materializing. So there's a lot of hopes and expectations that are not being met. The bigger context, of course, of all of this, you know, dispossession, displacement and exploitation is the fact that we're talking about a region of Indonesia where there are ongoing political uh, conflicts over issues of self-determination and autonomy. And of course, uh, for many Papuans, the invasion of Papua by these corporations is yet another manifestation of a much longer standing process of the denial of self-determination of indigenous West Papuans. Mm, absolutely. Can I just ask, before we move on to the project that you're currently working on, who is funding these agribusiness, these large agribusiness organisations and, and where is the labour force coming from? Hmm. So one thing I should make clear, and this is something that a lot of the NGOs working on the problems with the oil palm expansion in West Papua complain about, is that it's actually very, very difficult to trace where exactly this funding is coming from. It's these very elusive, quite serpentine supply and finance chains, uh, which, which can be very, very difficult to actually track in detail. From my research in the area, it became evident that many of these 
companies were being funded by the World Bank or it's the International Finance Corporation, which is the lending branch of the World Bank. And now, interestingly enough, the World Bank is an organ of the United Nations. So there's a whole other conversation we could have there about international human rights obligations and the private sector. Mm. Some of the money is also coming from national banks in Indonesia. And then there's a lot of, you know, there's a hugely nepotistic sort of relationship between corporations as well, right, that are sharing all kinds of land banks and hedge funds and trusts and so on. So there's a very sort of, I would use the word incestuous, but perhaps that's a little bit too strong. But there's, there's a whole kinship of companies at play here who mm-hmm. are all in some ways related to one another. And, you know, different tycoons are linked by, by, by family bonds. And so money is also moving around in much less sort of formal kinds of ways. Perhaps some social network analysis would be of benefit in this context. Certainly, yeah. (laughs) All right, so I'd like to talk about your current project now, which um, looks at the nutritional and cultural impacts of these agribusinesses, and specifically the disappearance of forest food from the diets of the Marind, and particularly the idea of hunger. How are you approaching this project? Yes, this new project is very interdisciplinary because for me there's something about food uh, about hunger which lends itself very very well to an interdisciplinary research approach right you can think about food and hunger in, in its material sort of biophysical sense you can think about food and hunger as a cultural you know practice or something that's shaped by cultural values and norms you can think about food and hunger in terms of politics or political economy the kind of power dynamics that shape who gets fed and who goes hungry mm. you can think about food in terms of emotions I personally think that all eating is in some ways emotional eating, right? There are certain affects associated with kinds of foods. It's all these different sort of facets to food that for me um, make it really interesting to explore from an interdisciplinary angle. There's also, of course, the whole nutritional science side of the story that I'm also hoping to weave in. So why this interest in food and more specifically hunger? Well, I mean, in many ways, it emanates from my research in West Papua where people talked about feeling hungry consistently. Mm -hmm. There was a pervasive discourse about constant hunger. A hunger that's new and different. The Papuans that I worked with, you know, it's not like they didn't know what it was to feel hungry. They had known famines in the past, linked to seasonal fluctuations and climate and so on. But there's something different about the kind of hunger that is that they're experiencing now. And this hunger is profoundly linked to the loss of the forest, right? Which is not just a source of food in a big pantry, uh, but it's also a sentient living animated environment populated by all kinds of plants and animals from whom Marin derive their food, but that are also so much more than just food because they're kin, right? Mm. So Marin, like many other indigenous communities, are one could call them animist in anthropological jargon, which simply means that they extend personhood and agency to the non-human world plants, animals, but also rocks, soils, the wind, and so on, right? So all these different entities together are what make the living community of the forest. And humans are are one part of that much bigger, more than human ecology. And so that's really why food matters. And the loss of the forest, therefore, gives rise to a kind of hunger, which is not just about the lack of food in generic terms. It's about the lack of food that are deeply culturally meaningful because they derive from entities that are alive and with whom Marin share all kinds of deep-seated kinship, historical and mythical kinds of bonds. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the rationale for the particular focus on hunger. I'm also trying to push in this project against what I see as the quite sanitized language of food security or food insecurity in policymaking discourse and indeed in the biomedical literature. What I'm looking at is really hunger in this sort of deeply visceral, fleshy, phenomenological sort of sense. What does it mean to feel hungry? Where do you feel it? Is it an individual experience? Is it shared? Is it physical? Is it psychological? Is it a bit of both? 
is it just humans that go hungry or do other entities go hungry too? Food is one of these things that we can sort of all agree is culturally shaped. There's much more of an assumption that hunger is kind of universal. Both you and I sort of know what it feels like to be hungry, right? And it's that we need food. What the project is trying to do here is to actually suggest that hunger might in fact be just as culturally shaped as an experience as the foods that we eat. And there are other forms of nourishment beyond simply the food that you are consuming provided by that more than human forest that you've just described. And I was really interested to read in one of your recent articles in Inside Indonesia that even though there is this discourse around hunger in these communities, these communities are also reporting experiences of overeating and overconsumption of new foods that have been produced elsewhere by unknown hands coming from unknown materials, unknown places, which I found quite striking because it's so paradoxical. Yes, absolutely. So that's the other side of the story. So on the one hand, you've got this quite severe food insecurity in Merauke now as a result of the loss of forest foods, but you've also got the substitution of these traditional valued forest foods with all kinds of imported commodities, things like rice, instant noodles, biscuits and ketchup that are either being brought in, you know, or purchased by communities from local kiosks, often owned and managed by settlers, or that are in fact being offered to communities by these same oil palm corporations as part of their CSR packages, their social welfare packages. Now, of course, if you look at the kind of foods that we're talking about here, they're clearly nutritionally quite deficient and very, very poor compared to the actually quite balanced and diverse forest-based diet that Marin would have sustained when the forest was was still standing. And certainly the fact that these foods come from unknown places, they're produced by unknown people, they derive from unknown substances, means that it's very unclear what kind of nourishment, as much as nutrition, you can obtain from them. And more than that, of course, these foods are associated with the kind of institutions that provide them, institutions like the government, like foreign corporations and settlers. And so for many Marind, these foreign imported foods are another manifestation of colonialism, right? They are imposed. There's a famous Chamorro poet, uh, Craig Santos Perez, who talks about gastrocolonialism, the idea of colonialism manifesting through the stomach, the politics of the belly, right? Where what you eat is determined or dictated by powerful others at the detriment of your indigenous sense of identity, sociality, and your relationships to the world and to other human beings. And so that's very much part of the way in which many anymore and think about these new kinds of food ways. That's not the whole story, though. You know, one of the big risks in the kind of work I do as an anthropologist is that of homogenizing what people think, say, believe and do, right? Now, there are big differences. Often these differences take uh, the shape of gendered or intergenerational differences, whereby Elderly Marind might be very much against these you know, modern foodways, but younger Marind who spend time in the city, have traveled or studied in Jakarta and come back to the villages, actually prefer to eat rice and instant noodles. Um, these foods are associated with modernity, with development, with progressing, right? Mm-hmm. Many of these young generation Marind are also very realistic. The for, you know, all palm is here to stay. The forest is not going to come back. The question now is not how do we revert to a traditional foodway, but how do we adapt, accommodate to these new kinds of foodways and what kind of new identities can we take on by eating, by consuming these foods. And this gives rise in turn to a lot of tension and conflict, or what Arjuna Padurai calls gastropolitics, the kind of frictions and arguments or contestations that can happen surrounding food, whereby what you eat says something about who you are or who you want to become. I'd like to ask you, with this project, you've got social science methods and science and technology studies and biomedicine What do you bring as an environmental anthropologist to this particular research? So I think 
As an environmental anthropologist, I bring to this kind of research both a methodological and an epistemological stance that differs, in fact, quite radically from the ways in which hard science disciplines like nutritional science and biomedicine would approach the topic of food and hunger. One of the primary sort of tools in the anthropologist's toolkits is that of participant observation and long-term immersion in the cultural world that one is trying to understand. And so this means spending extended periods of time in the field. It means participating in the everyday life and activities, including food procurement and food preparation activities of the local communities. It means also observing the kinds of conversations, uh, discourses, tensions, arguments that can happen among people in and around food. So it's a kind of fine balance between participating on the one hand and then sort of taking a step back to observe. And it can be a tricky one. Absolutely. Yes. The other thing that anthropology brings, which is really, really important when you're talking about things like food and culture and hunger, is this idea of cultural relativism. The basic tenet, really, of anthropology is to, when you go into the field, you suspend all kinds of value judgments about the things that that the people that you're working with believe, do, say, or think. The idea is to suspend that judgment and to really try to understand instead why is it that these things make sense to these people within their particular social, cultural, and environmental context, right? So really trying to get to what anthropologists call the emic or the insider's perspective. Now, one never fully goes native, and that's certainly not a goal, but the idea is really to try to get as close to that as possible. Another thing that I think anthropology brings to the picture is this idea that any phenomenon is always multifaceted. So as I was saying earlier, you know, food is cultural, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's political, it's economic, it's individual, it's collective, it's gendered, it's intergenerational, it's racial. And so the idea is to sort of pull together all these partial connections to weave as holistic, as complete, as comprehensive an image of the reality that you're trying to describe and analyze as you can. And I think that is, you know, a very different approach to some of the more biomedically driven approaches to food and hunger, which may in some cases focus on one particular nutrient or food group be it proteins, vitamins, or micronutrients, or a political economy approach, which sort of pans out and zooms out to look at the broader sort of power and structural dynamics. These are very important angles to incorporate within an anthropological approach. But what the anthropologist brings is really the bottom-up, fleshy, grounded, everyday experiences through which people sense and make sense of the living world. Just fascinating. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. And we're absolutely delighted to have you here at the University of Sydney. We can't wait to see where this research project goes. Thank you so much, Natalie. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.